Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually don't sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> I don't know what lunatics were running this Irish Times Second Captain's podcast asylum while I was away last week, but shit got loose, Ken and Murph. Really? Shit got loose. Well, what's, what's going on? Can one of you please explain to me how my favourite slot in the show, Ken's Ghouls, undoubtedly the best and uh, mm. favourite of all the uh, listeners to the podcast, was allowed to slip outside its very strict remit of FA Cup action to incorporate the Champions League. The Champions League doesn't need any more hype or spicing up. Uh, no. Just, I just see what I'm told. Yeah. yeah. Mark kind of came in. He had loads of fresh ideas. It was intoxicating. You know, maybe we made some errors of judgment, uh, Owen. I'm not going to lie to you. He's a, he's a I almost man. called okay. you Mark there. That would have been, been hard for you to take. I'm One sorry. more podcast away and I uh, might have been forgotten about it. It is the FA Cup that's lost its luster, though. It's the FA Cup that needs a little bit of jazzing up on a Monday podcast. So let's right last week's wrong and bring you an FA Cup quarterfinal edition. Of Ken's Goose. The magpie is renowned as the most intelligent of birds, and 11 magpies would probably have made a better job of this FA Cup tie than humans selected by Steve McLaren. Goose. Look at that! Oh, look at that! Goose. Oh, oh, what a goal! Oh, that's a magnificent goal! Goose. Interesting. Very interesting! Oh! Ken's Goose. Oh, it wasn't bad, was it? Goose. For centuries, philosophers have striven to interpret the mysterious movement of the celestial spheres through the night sky. Ptolemy believed that each planet's course was directed by its soul, while Islamic theologians such as Adud al-Din al-Iji insisted that the impression of circular movement could only come about through the will of God, suggesting that the planets themselves were imaginary and more tenuous than a spider's web. Johannes Kepler, arguing that circular motion was inherent in the spherical form, located the source of that mysterious motive power in the sun around which he knew the planets moved, and not vice versa. Now, from the small island of Reunion, comes a philosopher king from our age. Dimitri Payet stepped forward and, like Alexander, confronted by the infernal knot of Gordius, sliced through the deliberations with a single stroke of his right foot. Sometimes, regardless of the placement of the sphere on the goalkeeper, it's as simple as kicking the ball into 
the ghoul. <laughs> Suddenly Manchester United's world was spinning on its axis. But there was still time for Bastian Schweinsteiger to employ some large spheres of his own in United's cause. Scrambling across goal, Darren Randolph collided with the ample twin half-melons that had been laid across his path by the solid Teuton, sending him flying into the net, where he was joined half a second later by the ball. <laughs> Manchester United won, West Ham won. <laughs> oh, so we're just picking your favorite game now. Uh, that's not point. No, that's good. No, that's that's a good compromise. That was good. There was a lot in that. Yeah, I mean, that's not what, as much, not as many ghouls as I was expecting, but other than that, a lot of philosophers. So yeah. you know, Schweinsteiger's half melons. Yeah, no, it was good, Ken. It was good. Now that's not my own phrase. No. Um, no, well, I remember it being used of some. Uh, it was used of Tony O'Reilly. By wasn't it the the uh, rugby player Mick? What was his name? Doyle. Right. McDoyle. Uh, I'm pretty sure I referred to seeing Tony O'Reilly's ripe half melons. We're going back now. Glistening in the shower. And the impression. <laughs> what the are we, four minutes in, we've already got a McDoyle mentioned. Yeah. And the yeah. Ken Early bingo. Just imagine the, the, the packed power in those, mm. in those uh, hindquarters, in that muscular rump. <laughs> that was, that's left a, a lasting impression on me anyway. Ars Bloggs, Andrew Mangan in studio today after another crushing defeat. And Miguel Delaney was at Old Trafford. He'll join us a little bit later on. It's time for the report on sport. So Paris Saint-Germain are champions of France own. Just to let you know what's been happening while you've been away. 9-0 they beat Trois. Zaitan uh, <laughs> scoring just the four. Uh, then saying he's going to leave. Uh, he's still intending to leave. I have six weeks after a month and a half left of my contract. Then, as it stands, I'm leaving. If they replace the Eiffel Tower with my statue, I will stay at PSG. Uh, so he's laid it out, laid out the terms. But it looks as though he will be moving. Talk, maybe even um, Manchester United might be interested in signing him. He is an old ally of one of the contenders to take over at Manchester United, uh, Jose Mourinho. He, oh yeah. Reckons Mourinho's the greatest. Uh, he's a movie star. Uh, Reckon he could work with gigs? Is that time on mm -hmm. gigs? I'm sure the respect would be mutual. I don't know that if you know you were taking your first job in management that you would, as your first signing, would <laughs> sign Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Well, it'd be ballsy. It would be. It would. It would show that you're not cowed. Yeah, yeah, you're not. You're not cowed. But at the same time, it would be a little bit of a handful. He describes... Um, Get Balotelli in there as well. Mm. He just, <laughs> I can turn this kid around. Who's that but time? he's about 30. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, he's only... He's still only uh, 20, 26, I think. 25 or 26. Yeah, he's still, yeah. still got time. Yeah. Sorry, Ken. I keep cutting across you. I'm so excited to be back. 25. He's not 26 till August of this year. Yeah. That is quite something. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's still young. Although, yeah, I don't know if he's, if he's ever really going to deliver on his potential at this stage. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember Zatan talking about Mourinho uh, when he met him first uh, at Inter. He, uh, Mourinho's approach was to speak mainly to Zatan's wife and say, you have to make sure this guy is eating well, sleeping well, and not, you know, under any uh, silly pressure at home. Can you do that for me? Which <laughs> apparently they all like, but could also be seen as a, as a little bit Sexist and patronizing. Of course, it was 2000, 2007, 2008. Different, different time. Um, but yeah, a movie star. Uh, so maybe, who knows, uh, we could be seeing him in the Premier League. Although, maybe not equally. Uh, I have a feeling if Satan, Satan's aim is to win the Champions League this season, and if it happens, that might be the last we're seeing of him in Europe. Because uh, really, what's left to do? Yeah, but will he not have to make his mind up before then? 
uh, where he's going to go next. Does he, does he want to leave it till the middle of the summer? I don't think he. I don't think he needs to necessarily make up his mind. No, I mean he could. Suppose he's not a manager. It's not like he has to get in. Yeah, get his feet on the table or early doors. I'm sure he'd have some offers, and then maybe at some maybe when he's ready, he picks the one that he wants to wants to go to. But uh, yeah, so that's it. Uh, glorious uh, title victory for <laughs> uh, good good weekend for Paris Saint Germain. Not a good weekend for. Max Kruse, the uh, Wolfsburg striker, who had an experience that I think um, some of us can empathise with to a different degree than others own. Max Kruse uh, was in Berlin and went to a casino. Why shouldn't he? You know? Seems fair. Why shouldn't he go to a casino and gamble? So he did. And he won 75 grand in cash. And then he was so delighted with the uh, cash, he, he left the casino. Hopped into a taxi. What happened then? Lost the money. He left the money in the taxi. Um, so he. Well, uh, sorry, now excuse my ignorance, but when you win seventy-five grand in cash at a casino, do they do they give you a check? They, they evidently actually... gave him a paper bag of euros, <laughs> uh, which he left in the taxi. Now the Berlin taxi has mysteriously failed to report with the missing money. Uh, all Cruiser, uh, you know, had to put out an appeal, please. Please reunite me with my seventy-five grand, <laughs> causing a frenzied search in all German and all Berlin taxis of the back seats, mm. just to make sure uh, they weren't the lucky one with the golden ticket. And now Wolfsburg finding him twenty-five grand. Oh, come on, Wolfsburg! <laughs> as a result of what? His his indiscipline. What indiscipline? Dragging the name of the club through the. So hang on, if he'd gotten one seventy-five grand and come home with it safe and sound, it's fine. But the fact that he left it the taxi—that's that's squealing, like squealing to the world about his lost money. You know, making football look day, bad. The day before a game, the day. Oh no, I think it's the day after a game. Well, I mean, then it's none of Wolfsburg's dragging the name of the club through the mud. No, yeah, twenty-five grand. I lost a few <laughs> rough weekend. I lost a few hundred quid in taxi once. Did yeah, I was in college at the time, or maybe just out of college. Why were you? Why were you going around with hundreds well, of? It was just before the era. You know, you'd go to. I was going to Paris. The old party. I was going to. Pa- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to Paris the next day, right? Yeah. For a few days. On holiday, and I it was just around the area where you weren't sure if those if your bank card was going to work in another mm. European city. Yeah. You'd heard that you know some of your friends had found no, it's fine, and others had said no, no, it doesn't work. Swallows it up. Yeah. So I just didn't take any chances. Took out a few euro before. Took out a few euro and decided, geez, a few hundred euro I should say. This is a lot of money. I better get a taxi home rather than I was going to walk home. And thought this will be the day I get mugged. Right. Today I get mugged in the mean streets of Salorgan. <laughs> you were suddenly, you were like Frodo Baggins or whatever with, yeah. you, with the precious. Suddenly Crippled. Yeah, suspecting but... everyone's intentions. So I took the money home in a taxi, unfortunately, forgot to take it out of the taxi. Well, sure, no problem. The taxi driver, 10 minutes later, knocks mm. on the door, says, listen. Did you go down the, down the carriage office? Oh, God. <laughs> I think I did, yeah. <laughs> the carriage yeah. office. What a joke. That's a complete joke. That's a, that's a cruel joke played by the taxi drivers in the city. <laughs> you just go you in. Go, oh, yeah, just go down the carriage office. Yeah, and you go down there and it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Bloody yeah. taxi drivers Don't telling people to come down here again. Yeah. I, was, I thought you were going to say that had happened on the way to the airport and you ended up in Paris having to go around in your pigeon French. Uh, je suis désolé. Uh... <laughs> Je m'appelle... No, but funny, just, just, just to smooth it over with my mum, I did speak to her in French just, just to jazz it up when I asked her for the replacement money at yeah, that time. Yeah, she, she made you, made you <laughs> whole. Uh, making your own McDevitt whole. I have un problème. Uh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you talking about, you weirdo? Yeah, un problème. I, I, I uh, need some money for this holiday. Yeah. So just a Spanish football. So Real Madrid won uh, thanks to a goal 
well, thanks in part to a goal by Sergio Ramos, who later received his 20th red card uh, of his career. Uh, and apparently then uh, didn't disappear down the tunnel as required, which could, let's face it, if he wasn't Sergio Ramos, result in an extra one-match ban, which would rule him out of the match against Barcelona, which is coming up pretty soon. Uh, the return match, obviously, they lost the home match 4-0 uh, in the league. Um, but the most interesting thing to happen this weekend at Real Madrid was not really anything on the uh, field so much as what they were saying. <laughs> I, know, I know where you're going with this. Well, uh, I just can't... Really... tennis player was given their public support. So Rafael Nadal um, was uh, the subject of uh, some uh, loose talk um, by uh, Rosaline Bachelot, who is the former French health and sports minister, which is interesting that they have put those two departments together. Uh, you would have thought the person would have quite a lot on their plate. But uh, what she said was, um, that uh, Rafael Nadal's uh, seven-month absence through injury in 2012 was almost certainly due to a positive doping test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> so Real Madrid took this very personally indeed, which is amazing because Rafael Nadal has never played for Real Madrid as far as I'm aware. He's, he's a guy who sometimes turns up at their matches. Uh, so I'm not quite sure why they felt the need to go out and live for him as they have done. But what they've issued a statement which says, Rafa Nadal represents the fundamental values of sport. His greatness and his incredible achievements have always been based upon a foundation of exemplary conduct, unwavering work, talent, and astonishing levels of commitment. This being the case, our institution considers the attacks made on his person by former Minister Rosalind Bachelot to be unjustifiable and unacceptable. Uh, Zinedine Zidane continues... I feel bad for Rafa Nadal <laughs> because he's a gentleman, a person that's been shown the values he has and that everyone loves. He's a professional. I know him a little. I feel bad for what they've said. He has to leave all this to one side and think that everyone who loves sport loves Rafa Nadal, whether they be French, Spanish, or American. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I, I found that a bit of an odd one. Really. He's a club member whatever that is supposed to mean. And uh, he's yeah, somebody who's got a bit of an association with the club. Quite why they... Dis- and it's funny, it's it's not as though... Uh, he's not in Maria Sharapova's position, for example. Uh, if Rafael had been in Maria Sharapova's position this week, maybe you would expect Real Madrid one way or the other to say something. I don't know. But uh, the fact that it was this was... A little bit under the radar, I, I thought the story. Maybe it was just because I was away. I hadn't originally seen. I only heard that the uh, French sports and health minister had said this when uh, Real Madrid, Real Madrid <laughs> and br- brought it up. Yeah, m- mentioned the statement. But yeah, you know, you have to be careful. Uh, yeah, with the public support of any sporting figure when they're not in your remit, Real Madrid can one hundred percent say, "Okay, none of our players are doping. There's no doping on going on here." I don't know how they can be one hundred percent emphatic about other people from other sports. So you do have to, you're, you're treading a slightly dangerous line there. But, uh, yeah. you know, and, oh, sorry, you were going to come back in there? Well, no, I, I agree. I just think that it's, uh, they'd want to be very confident. They want to be very sure of their ground mm-hmm. to make a statement like that. Because the problem with it is, like, well, well obviously someone in the Real Madrid PR department thinks Rafael Nadal is a, is a top man. Sure, quite a few of them do. Maybe it came from the president himself. Maybe Florentino Perez thinks the doll is great, and you know, us uh, gods recognize gods, uh, and we have to stick up for each other here. Uh, great Spanish sporting institutions. 
they'd want to be fairly sure that they were they were back in uh, you know they weren't they weren't standing up for a guy you know who didn't maybe deserve that level of support this idea of missing of suddenly missing a number of months uh and there being dubious reasons for it. we've seen we've seen it in tennis we've seen it in golf with Dustin Johnson uh, but we've seen it in tennis uh, as well and Maria Sharapova even made reference to it not to Rafa Nadal but she made reference to the fact that well you know and, and largely she didn't throw the rest of tennis under the bus I heard you guys talking uh, about, the, about this all last week but in that particular comment where she said well you know at least I don't pretend to be injured to uh, avoid uh, positive tests or something along those lines she you know she, that was a fairly blanket kind of accusation that could be that you can take your pick who you want to apply that rationale to. Interesting, Nadal did say last week that he has used stem cell therapy and blood spinning, platelet-rich plasma, PRP Mm. therapy, which is known as a type of blood spinning to help his rehabilitation from knee injuries. I've been open all my career. I never tried to hide nothing that I did. I did PRP and then I did stem cells. The first time with PRP, it worked fantastic. And the second time it was bad. I had to stop playing tennis for seven months. With stem cells, I used it two times on my knees. It worked very well. I'm not doing, never did, and I'm never going to do something wrong. Quite a few sports. Tiger Woods has previously talked about about blood spinning. Well, they always talk about it in terms of PRP, this platelet-rich plasma therapy. And Spurs have talked about it before. Villas yeah. Boas came out and started nattering away about it, and people were thinking, "Huh, what the what? What are you talking about here exactly?" Yeah. Uh, what it does is takes blood from an injured area of the body, spins it to separate the cells, uh, platelets, and serum, and then injects it back into the damaged area to help compression injuries heal more quickly. Yeah. Now. There's a thin enough line between that and blood doping. And blood doping involves taking your healthy blood out of your body, yeah. storing it, and then injecting it back in, say, in the middle of the Tour de France when all your red blood cell counts are pretty low, etc. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's allowed. It's legal at the moment, so it's fine for everyone to do this PRP stuff. But, you know, we're checking that water list every... Uh, maybe late late December, early January every year, just to open, be sure. Open those emails. Yeah, open those emails. Even if they're hard to navigate, as Sharapova said, <sighs> it's worth navigating them and just double checking that everything is still in. It's it, it's just a, it ties back into the idea that you guys were talking about last week that it it's it's a difficult one to to police now. And there's a yeah. question of should you just legalize everything, let them all dope, and be honest about it. I don't think. You should, and I don't think people would be honest about what they're taking, even if it was legal. Yeah, but it is it, it, getting to be a more and more difficult area to govern. Right? Yeah, I mean, in the case of Nadal, like when he says so vehemently, "I've never done and never would do anything wrong," you almost get the impression when he says that there, there's very few people on the planet who have a, who have a deeper knowledge of where the line is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rafael Nadal, he sounds very sure of his of his position on that one. Like he's looked into, you know, exactly. What's well, he's obviously taken, yeah, he's he's taken the legal science, scientific route as far as it goes. Yeah. So he's aware, maybe he's and I'm sure aware of what he's not supposed to you do. You know, Spanish super clubs, uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona, um, have got also top sports science departments. I mean, I think Luis Enrique was saying the other day, just, this is, yeah, it's amazing, you know, it's the first week, I think it's the first week this year that Barcelona haven't had a midweek game, you know. <laughs> Everyone is just absolutely flying. It's, a, it's brilliant. I mean, they've their training uh, is just is really top class. But where are we? Another team, a team that have a slightly less cluttered schedule than Barcelona, are Leicester City, who, as we know, only have to concentrate on the league, and they have a high profile supporter in Alex Ferguson, who is speaking at some racing event, and uh, the Sunday Times report him as having 
talked a little bit about the title race, and he says, of course they can, uh, of course they can, i.e. Leicester can win the league. I believe they will win it with three games to spare, um, which is a which is a confident prediction uh, yeah. from from Ferguson. Maybe I don't know to what extent he's looked into it, sat down with his pen and paper, and you know, added I think up he the was fixtures. Asked, yeah, I think he said something like uh, they'll have it won before they come to Old Trafford, so which would suggest that that's their third last game. So yeah. it might suggest that. Uh, Maybe that, he has. That he actually has. Sat well, down. maybe Alex Ferguson. I mean, he hasn't missed him many other games since he left the job. So I presume, you know, all of this talk that he was going to, you know, take up the violin or something. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure that that's how his retirement. How many dictators out. can you really read about in your life, Murphy? You mm. gotta, you gotta have a, a hobby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he yeah. maybe maybe it's the case with Ferguson. That he doesn't even need to sit down and work these things out. He just automatically he just looks at the fixture list and immediately knows you know like a chess grandmaster that can sort of see the whole board in one glance <laughs> he can kind of work out alright okay yeah I see Leicester needs to do they win this this and this yeah no yeah three games yeah, it's like those games. chess grandmasters who can play 20 games simultaneously he knows all of the team's fixture lists all the time <laughs> That would, would be one of the more surprised. useless uh, uh, superpowers that and a man could have. He can't stop. He can't stop checking which referees. He can't stop compulsively <laughs> checking which referee is, is refereeing which game. But uh, he he had a couple of other things to say about Leicester, um, notably that N'Golo Kante was the best player in the league by a long way this season, and that the most influential person in the Premier League has been Steve Walsh. Steve Walsh is the head of recruitment at Leicester, who is so hot right now. Um, he's the guy who signed, you know, Mares, uh Kante. Uh, Wait, is this the guy who w- is going to Arsenal or no? No, th- this that's w- Ben Rigglesworth. Okay, yeah, you got the wrong one. That's said what Leicester. Somebody uh, Lineker. I, I'm I'm just yeah. confusing the words Leicester and Lineker now. Um, Gary Lineker has written a big piece in the Guardian where he talks about how this is the best thing that's ever happened. This title race, title challenge from Leicester, um, but they obviously have to play. Newcastle tonight, and Rafa Benitez has taken over at Newcastle, and it makes it a more interesting game, I think, than it would have been. I'm, I would have been pretty confident of Leicester's ability to beat Stephen Clarence Newcastle. Still, be quite confident that they could win this game tonight, but you don't know what impact Benitez is going to have. Is he really going to? Is he going to come in and change things around immediately? I'd be surprised if he did, actually. Well, yeah. I don't think he's that type of guy. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. It's not as though his strengths have ever been seen to to, to have been geeing up his players to go. You know, he's a very Tim Sherwood tactically. Yeah, and maybe a Tim Sherwood is actually the kind of figure you want when you just need to scrape together some results towards the end of the season. But we don't know because Benitez has never been down there uh, battling away. Not in not not since before he was at Valencia anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's a guy who works in the long term I think you know he's a kind of a long term guy like Sherwood is a kind of if you wanted a mad roll of the dice which could go either way um, or just bring Shearer back again well no Shearer it's not gonna, I mean they brought Shearer in in a, in a very similar position and it didn't go how they sure. were hoping for it to go but he's learned I mean I, I've no doubt that Benitez is a much better appointment than Tim Sherwood would have been but you never know if it's a change of mood that's needed in the in the short term Maybe he, maybe this, that's an area in which he does do that. Sure, but I don't know. Anyway, they've gone with they've gone with Rafa, uh, so we'll see how that goes that's tonight. That's it for Kennedy's report on sport. What you? What are you saying? You just a phony man. This is just for. Ass. I admit I don't look like that.
leaders today supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. You can't teach that. Arsenal have four wins in their last 14 games, effectively out of the Champions League, way off the pace in the title race, and now they've been knocked out of the FA Cup by Watford. Uh, even Arsene Wenger himself is describing it as a farce. Arsblog's Andrew Mangan, how are you? Oh, I'm great, on. <laughs> <laughs> have you, have you, are you keeping the faith in any way? I don't know about that. Um, I'm trying to get my head around what's happening because it is quite unusual for an Arsene Wenger team to look as disjointed and just like a team that can't play football. Um, even in the darkest days of Arsene Wenger's reign when there were players there who you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't count on for very much, you could at least see that there was some kind of style or cohesion to the football that they were trying to play, even if they couldn't play very often. And this team at the moment just looks an absolute mess. Yeah, and at least in recent seasons, the FA Cup has provided a bit of a sanctuary and they were able to steamroller the lesser teams in that. Uh, I guess that they weren't even able to do that yesterday. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's overlooked that on the way to winning the two finals. They beat Liverpool, they beat Everton, they beat Tottenham. And they beat Manchester United last season, and it worked out well in the final stages of the competition. When you're playing, you know, the whole city, it nearly didn't work out. But uh, the worst Aston Villa side anyone can uh, ever remember. So yeah, there was a, a touch of luck, but they did they did beat some good teams along the way. And I think what what the FA Cup was looking like this season was something of a, a life preserver. As the league slipped away, at least you could look to this historic three in a row in the FA Cup as something that might uh, salvage some su- success and, and bring a trophy. But that's obviously uh, that's gone now. Just briefly on the game itself, um, I was struck again by how bad Olivier Giroud is. Um, he is a player who is obviously short of the pace required to, you know, for a, a really top, you know, some a Lewandowski type player. He's, mm. he's never going to be like that. But you don't necessarily have to be like that. There's other ways to be effective. But he also seems to lack the kind of um, cunning of, a, you know, he could be like a Teddy Sheringham type, you know, can't really run, is decent on the ball, can score. But he just doesn't seem to link up with the players around him. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to understand why... I mean, Welbeck, for instance, came on and demonstrated yeah. the big problem with Welbeck is he can't he can't keep his composure in these. Mo- he gets excited. He gets as excited as any fan in the stadium <laughs> and just completely <laughs> loses his cool. You know, he might be able to get over that though. At least he has some kind of dynamism, makes things happen in the game. Yeah. Olivier Giroud just doesn't do anything. Yeah, he did, and has got twenty goals this season for it. You know, I think he's a good backup option. I think that's what he should be for a team like Arsenal. He's a guy who can come off the bench and score some goals and give you that that different option. But as the main guy, mm. as the I'd main striker... Have, I'd rather have Welbeck. I, I honestly would. Like, Welbeck runs around, he misses 70% of his, you know, clear chances. But he, I, I just think the team looks a lot more dynamic and a you know, more difficult proposition with him there rather yeah, than a guy who doesn't do anything. I would agree with you. And I think in a weird, perverse way, Arsene Wenger was saving Welbeck for Barcelona. I think that's why he didn't start. I think he'll start well back against Barcelona. Um, but I mean, I, I think the team that he put out yesterday, he probably had a right to assume that they'd be able to to win that game. Um, even if Giroud is limit, limited, um, that was a team that should have won. Can you elaborate just on what you said there about this being a different Arsenal team from the other Arsenal teams we've seen underachieving in recent years? What, what have... 
why are they even why are they more disjointed what are they lacking that other teams at least showed I, I don't quite know I think you could probably look back at some of the Arsenal teams and say they overachieved if you can get into the Champions League year after year with players like Skrilacci and uh, Danielson and Bentner that's perhaps an overachievement and what we're seeing from this current group is an underachievement that when you go out and you buy players like Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez and you spend that amount of money that, that that's a statement of intent that you're supposed to you're supposed to challenge for the league title and uh, January 2nd Arsenal were two points clear of Leicester at the top of the table and here we are in mid-March and they're, they could be 11 points behind by the end of today. So where where is the responsibility? I mean, for instance, my heart sank during the week when I saw after Arsenal had beaten, was it Hull? Was it Hull? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I then saw Walcott saying, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Walcott did an interview he's like, oh, you know, basically we'd had a right to sort out in that dressing room. Just a few of the lads, a few of the leadership figures in the in the dressing room stepped up, and you know they called a, a team meeting. He revealed they called a team meeting to thrash out the issues and everything. And and I thought, why is saying this now? Yeah, I mean, look, get to the end of the season and achieve something, and then say, you know what happened? We actually had a meeting, and it was great. And and look at what it look at what it did. He's he's such and an he experienced player. <laughs> he's been there for so long. He should know these pitfalls. You know, before before mm. you've actually done the, the difficult part of the season, you don't sort of say we've solved that problem. No, no. You, you one game against Championship opposition that's focusing on getting promoted back to the Premier League, and if, uh, you know that doesn't that doesn't fix anything. And especially when what two or three of those goals were really late, they added some gloss to the scoreline. It was a pretty poor performance overall. There's a touch of the. Brendan Rodgers making toast late at night in his Absolutely. office at uh, Liverpool. Just before they're... Cook, cooking up all these tactical master plans. The game that was actually going to decide how their season went, just yeah. before that game. Uh, there, is there something unseemly about about all this, though? The way this looks like it may end for Wenger, and this isn't through nobody else's fault necessarily. I mean, he's had a chance to walk away any time he wants. But now, after every game, you're seeing Claude and these other guys on Arsenal TV having... A, Having a go at him, ranting and raving about how uses their manager in their club is. Uh, this, it's it could have Wenger could have maybe chosen his exit, and now eventually it'll get chosen for him. He could have, yeah. And um, you know, winning the FA Cup in 2014, some people might have said that was a good time to walk away. He stayed and uh, won the FA Cup last year, and really those two FA Cup wins should have been building blocks, a platform for the team to go on and do more. Uh, the way it's going at the moment, it, it feels like it's getting more and more acrimonious. And it would be a real shame if a manager who's done so much for Arsenal um, down the years, if it ended in in like the stadium just being against him, mm. everybody in there. I think there's more feeling now that change has to come and is inevitable. It's how that that sentiment is demonstrated over the over the next little while. You know. Well, you're in a good position then to, to analyze this because you've been. I mean, how many years have you been doing Arsbog now? 15, 16 years? 14 years, 14 years. Right, so you you will, you will have um, been hearing from Arsenal fans for a long time, mm. uh, and there have been a lot of technological shifts in that time. And one of the most dramatic, and I suppose we have to admit entertaining ones, is this spectacle of, as Owen referred to there, uh, Claude, and various other, you know, Men who are becoming famous, you know, men who are becoming known by their first names, <laughs> Claude, Andy, uh, all of these other guys outside the stadium ranting and raving. I mean, there's this new guy on Arsenal Fan TV with a, a skinny guy with a 
uh, with a with a hat, like yeah, a beanie hat. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the man. And I, I saw his performance. I've seen like, Claude waiting patiently beside him. Think, yeah. I'll give this guy. I'll give this guy a, a minute. I'll are you guys not just fueling this madness yourself? <laughs> we we, we are. But we can't. We can't help it. It's it's latching into the, our dopamine reward system somehow <laughs> just to see these Arsenal fans. But here here's uh, this guy was ranting and raving about how uh, you know there's hundreds there's a hundred million pounds. You know, we need to spend hundred million pounds. Like, I was thinking, why do you keep saying he's talking? Most of his rant was just mentioning huge sums of money mm. and how they needed to be spent on players. Mm. And you know, it was possible to kind of step back and go, "This is unbelievable." The anger this man has about this, the 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 economic power that he wants to see devoted to this trivial problem of, you know finding someone better than Giroud when there are so many things going on in society it's kind of weird that he can he can feel this way but that's kind of a that's a side point really the point is is it now getting more do these sort of shifts in opinion you know for instance against the manager a stadium getting angry with a manager like Arsene Wenger happen now much more rapidly and with more violence now that the crowd is kind of watching itself uh, in, yeah, it's, in a it's sense egging itself a on. That oh, that's, before, yeah, yeah. that's really, that's quite meta, isn't it? I don't, I don't quite know, you well, know, because I can't speak for, for them. I just know that in, in terms of the reaction that, that we get, it seems more and more like people were for a while divided into, you know, into camps. And I've always disliked that really divisive thing. Are you Wenger in or mm. Wenger out? You know, you can see that he's a man who has flaws but can still do good things. I think what's happened now this season, there's a familiarity to it. There's a tedium to to failing the same way over and over. And I think people are kind of bored of it. I think that's what's happened. Um, and the shift seems to be that more people want a change of manager than ever before. The difficulty is the structures at the club that exist don't convince a lot of people that the change that would be made is going to be necessarily any better than, than Arsene Wenger. Well, you, you wouldn't have much confidence when you look at, for instance, did you, you saw the comments from Stan Krunke at the Sloan's uh, analytics conference. Yeah. I was just amazed by how what banal... Did he, what did he say? Well, this is a, this is the owner, you know, a billionaire owner of Arsenal. Uh, is he actually the majority shareholder? Majority or is he shareholder, the controlling yeah. shareholder. Okay, so he's 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 calling the shots at Arsenal. Uh, now, I w- he just sounded like such an idiot when the stuff that he was saying. It just it wasn't in any way impressive. So first of all, he he comes out with the line apparently with no idea of how this is going to play. He says. Um, People are saying, you know, why don't you spend some money? You know, I don't know if there was a couple of, you know, we'll spend some. <laughs> but uh, he said, you know, for me being an individual owner, I have to have some sort of reality involved. I think when he says being an individual owner, he means as as opposed to say the royal family of a of a Middle Eastern oil state, right? right. Yeah, because he's only linked into the Walton family, which is probably just as wealthy. But you know, maybe his his wife doesn't allow him to spend her money. So he says, if you want to win championships. Then you would never get involved. <laughs> I mean, well, how could he, how could he allow these words to tumble out of his mouth? I mean, it's just what's he? I don't know. He's he's ridiculous, and yeah, a lot of people would say that some of the problems at the club have stemmed from an owner who clearly has no genuine ambition to win anything. Like he he's never once since he took over the club said my aim here is to make Arsenal the league champions or the best team in Europe or or to win things. Not once has he uh, expressed that sentiment whatsoever. Mm. And people view his ownership uh, for what it is. It's an investment vehicle for him. So with that 
as the the figurehead of the club, so to speak, and a board that's operating to his whims or to his desires, I think he is quite hands-off in a certain way that he will defer to Arsene Wenger and he'll defer to uh, Ivan Gazidis to a certain extent. But Wenger has a huge amount of power in in Arsenal Football Club, not just uh, on the pitch, but in the club uh, as a whole, at board meetings. He is sort of, in a way, the glue that holds it together. And when he's gone, you have to wonder what sort of uh, behaviour Kroenke will then feel like he can get away with, because he's not a guy who can challenge Arsene Wenger now, but he could easily challenge whoever the hell comes in afterwards, uh, yeah. if that man is of, of lesser stature. I think that Arsene Wenger understands him very well, actually. And I think... Uh, understands Kroenke? Yeah, I think he does. And I think he knows that actually he fits the bill for Kroenke. You know, Kroenke is quite happy with the job he's doing. Whatever the guys think on Arsenal Fan TV, they're coming at it from a different angle. Um, it's a, in, in a similar way, I think Ferguson understood the Glazers. Essentially, they didn't really want any trouble. They just wanted him to keep you know, making thing, making it work, mm. and they wouldn't really interfere. And I was struck by this, especially when I saw Crunkett talking about. <clears throat> he he has some things about because it's obviously an analytics conference. They're at the Sloan conference, kind of the the yearly event for this type of industry. So he he has something to say, and, and, and as usual, it's quite banal. He says, "I was always interested in Moneyball." And you can just imagine half the audience of this thing kind of face palming, you know. Moneyball is the the oldest, most cliched part of that particular industry. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's not Moneyball. You know, Moneyball is a book from, you know, 13 years ago. It says, Billy Bean, uh, one of his heroes, happened to be our manager at Arsenal, Arsene Wenger. Arsene has an undergraduate degree in economics and has always had that analytical thing going on. When we acquired a controlling interest in Arsenal in 2011, after that we started pushing pretty hard because it seemed to me there were some people who were more advanced in that area. And so we were fortunate in that we acquired Stat DNA. That gave us a big lift in the soccer business. Now, he's referring there to this um, analytics company Arsenal mm. bought a few years ago, Stat DNA. They paid like £2 million for this little firm that makes proprietary analytic data for them. You know, no one else has access to it. Now, <laughs> the interesting thing about this is I remember a couple of times this season hearing Arsene Wenger talking about expected goals. Yeah. He was dropping in this phrase, expected goals, and uh, he, maybe he was talking about Giroud. I can't remember which player in particular he, he meant. And at the time, I thought, oh, maybe Wenger's kind of going down that road a bit. When I read this, I realized, no, Wenger's just talking to Stan when he says that. That's just Wenger saying, yeah, I'm using your little stat DNA company. <laughs> you know, that was another two million well spent. Another good job, boss. You know, and as you can see, we're getting along with it. You know, I think he's kind of, he, he's... He's playing the owner effectively that he and, and the owner likes what he's likes what he's seeing. Even if they're losing, he still likes what he's seeing. Maybe. I don't think it makes any difference to Kroenke whether Arsenal win or lose. Um, you know, because he knows Wenger has got this ability to produce some measure of consistency throughout the season. So it's always top four. If you don't win the title, it doesn't matter, you're still gonna get in the Champions League. You're not gonna win the Champions League, it doesn't matter, you still get the T V money. So, for, from from his point of view, Wenger is the absolute perfect manager for him. I have a little bit of danger, though, top four wise this time. Yeah, bad result or two. Yeah, look at the form. The Arsenal's form. West Ham maybe getting it. Well, you know, the way Arsenal are playing, unless they turn things around, the, the top four is very much at risk. And you know, they go to Barcelona on Wednesday night. They come home at some point, middle of the night, Thursday morning. Then they have a rest day. Then they travel to Liverpool on Friday. So no real training session, no nothing. Then they've got a 12.45 kickoff against Everton, mm. which has been a game that has been tricky in the past for, for Arsenal. Um, you know, lose that game, 
after what's probably going to be a loss in, in Barcelona, if we're being brutally honest about it, <laughs> um, you know, then things, things are going to be very, very difficult. And you wonder, how is he going to... If he can't get the players to play uh, functionally against Watford in the FA Cup at home, where they have a real chance to win a trophy, how on earth is he going to get them up for to try and get them up for a competition which they have realistically no chance of winning. Yep, fair enough. Andrew, try to enjoy the Barcelona game. In the meantime, thanks very much for popping in. No worries. See if you don't get out with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got my Terry Butcher in. Mr Tate, how you doing? Not so good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no peep, I take no peep, I take no, I take no, I take no peep. Just so what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans, you need to fucking work on it. You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! He's your biggest fool. Is there an argument that Arsene Wenger is even more powerful at Arsenal than Alex Ferguson was at Old Trafford? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that, I, I'd say it's comparable. It just I, doesn't sound like there's anyone there to tell him your time's up. Well, there was no one telling Ferguson anything, you know? I mean, come on, he was completely in, in charge, I think. I don't think it's possible to be any more in charge than he was, really. And, and he also had the, the 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 other thing that Ferguson had, which is, makes it different from Wenger's situation, is the results right up to the end were you know pretty good. You know, he kept winning titles right up until the end. You know, getting to the Champions League final, uh, you wouldn't have had these fans ranting and raving. You were you were always going to have some fans ranting and raving, but it's not as though the stadium was in uproar and you know obviously significant proportion of the fans thought his time was up. That wasn't the case at all. You know, he, he had the whole thing under his thumb. Um, in terms of relations relations with the board and the ownership of the club, I guess then you're talking about quite, maybe Wenger's even a bit closer to his guys. No, I don't think, I think Ferguson and David Gill were pretty tight as well, you know. Maybe a more effective team than Wenger and Gazidis. Miguel Delaney was at Old Trafford yesterday. Uh, Miguel, we'll talk about the United side of things here, but you interviewed Dimitri Payet last week and he fairly stepped up this time. Was that one of the best free kicks you've seen? Well, I mean, it was, it's hard to think. Maybe aesthetically, had I gone right into the top corner, it might have been better. But in terms of, I suppose, doing its job of going in, <laughs> it's hard to think how it could have been better. Because, I mean, he put it right by the post, as far wide of the Gaia as you can get without going wide. So in, in that sense, it was absolutely supreme. Yeah, and there was a lovely loop on it. It, it, it was great for the slow motion replays, which I always like for free kicks. I mean, there was, yeah. there's a nice lingering shot of a, a slow motion replay where all you're seeing is ball and, 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 you know, and the sky is the backdrop. Yeah, I also quite like the way he's, he's another one of these players who's kind of brought back into vogue this, this old style of Zico Beckham style free kicks where it's just you know, a simple curl on the ball. The, the, whole, the whole knuckleball thing is kind of fading out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm no, traditional in that it's, sense. It's so totally I like by, uncontrollable. By it as well. It's a completely uncontrollable shot. I mean, it's it's what the, the knuckleball one. There's a good uh, reason why why you know David Beckham and uh, you know players like this were learned how to do free kicks that way. It's because the other way doesn't actually work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure, I mean, it, well, isn't Ronaldo's record in free kicks actually awful in that sense? It's kind of, it, it got as bad as one and eighty or something like that at one point. Yeah, yeah but didn't uh, wasn't it partly maybe a reaction to? 
the changing design of footballs, Ken? That as they became swervier and less predictable, it maybe made a bit more sense to try what Ronaldo has tried? Yeah, it, I mean, it did. And he scored a couple of great free kicks, but the free kicks themselves became swervier and more unpredictable and fewer of them... <laughs> they a lot of them swerved away from the goal. It was like he was prepared to sacrifice scoring a few just for the sake of scoring a couple of really good ones. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think because when they went in, they were so memorable, it kind of created a skewed perception about them as well that it was much more effective than it actually was when usually they'd be ballooned anywhere. Miguel, what sort of... Um, how did you find Payet? What sort of personality? He's known to be uh, a man confident in his own abilities. How did you find him? Uh, he was quite a, a happy chap, basically. Um, like, I mean, he, he, as, he, as he alluded to in the interview itself, he's actually had quite a difficult career and even used the line at one point, I, I wasn't an easy lad to work with, but, I mean, and he's had a lot of fla- uh, flashpoints in his career. You know, getting into a fight with uh, Blasi Matuidi, he's he had a go with Didier Deschamps, which is probably one reason why he won't be at the Euros this season, even though he should be. Uh, but he was very, very mellow on Saturday and quite easy going. Although he was, he was a true interpreter, um, which which can which can always be a bit of a bit of an odd one, and I think at one point I actually asked the question, uh, "How's your style?" Because he was talking about how he always likes to put on a show, um, and you know, essentially humiliate people. But uh, he he claimed he, he he didn't do it for that reason. But um, I, I asked him, "Has there ever, have you ever had managers that were irritated about style?" And I think he didn't hear the style part through translation, and that. Uh, <laughs> Got, got, got slightly irritated with that himself, although it, it was it was explained to him that uh, we, we, I didn't think he was uh, difficult or anything like that. What about the game? Well, yeah, he, he was yeah. he was very mellow himself and uh, and quite happy. But and it was quite interesting the story that at sixteen he just wanted to completely give up football. Yeah, how close did, did he come to actually doing that though? I mean, it's not one of those things that players say because it sounds kind of sounds kind of like a nice part of their story. Well, I mean, some of the words he used around it, said, I was traumatized. I, I didn't want to even consider. Going back to France, we just got off the agenda. Um, I said, but he was sixteen. I suppose it could be a bit of a maybe an adolescent flounce. Um, but it, it, like the way he painted it, because he was even the way it wasn't just the words he said, but the way he was talking about it, it did seem kind of one of these key developments in his career. And his dad and his uncle had to talk him around. And, and he mentioned about how his dad seems to have been a similar player to him, and he felt he owed it to his dad because his dad never got the chance to go beyond Réunion. Mind you, from the way he was talking about Réunion as well, I'm not sure why he'd ever want to leave. It's sounded. <laughs> Paradise. What about the game itself? I saw Slavan Bilic afterwards was asked about the replay and he said, I fancy us. Yeah, I fancy us and I think we'll do it, which, which I thought was great. Is, yeah. is that as much an indication of how far Manchester United have fallen as anything else that rival managers now are backing themselves publicly to stuff them in the replays? Well, pretty much. And I mean, I think there's a very strong argument that um, whatever, whatever about squad quality and resources, West Ham are just a better team than United now. They're better put together. Um, although oddly, I don't, th- I don't think they were great yesterday, and, and P- Payet wasn't great yesterday. Apart, apart from his two, his two moments, I suppose the uh, the incident in the box, and then the free kick. But it's been kind of a, like I've seen a lot of West Ham lately, and there is an odd thing with them in that they're kind of like water, and that they just they they fill the available space and basically rise to the level of who they're up against. So I've seen them look absolutely brilliant against some really good sides, particularly Man City, even if City have had a difficult season. And uh, on Arsenal on the, on the opening day of the of the season, uh, but also then really bad against Bath. I mean, their ma- recent match against Sunderland was one of the worst games I've seen uh, this year. And uh, I suppose with United, it's hard to say which is which because we don't really know how, how good United are. But yeah, it was as if kind of yesterday. And Billich is usually brilliant at adapting to the game plan of the other side, as he did against Spurs, and the way he kind of put their intense pressing on Spurs. 
Um, whereas yesterday, it was almost as if he didn't really have a, a game plan to react to because United are so static. What uh, was your impression of the of the occasion itself, Miguel? I mean, did Old Trafford seem like an uh, intimidating arena for these West Ham players? Payet said, uh, "This." <laughs> I don't know if he was kind of maybe angling a little bit for a transfer when he said, this is just one of my favourite stadiums, but like, uh, it looks as though they were delighted to play there as opposed to sort of, you know, being scared. Um, Well, actually, the press box is quite close to the away end, which is always, um, it's doubled in size for FA Cup matches. And so for pretty much most of the game, all I could hear was uh, was West Ham fans. Um, And I suppose, the United crowd did respond to them but so my, my perspective was a little bit skewed. In general, I thought it was actually a great atmosphere. and It was quite an open game, if not necessarily a high-quality one in the last 15. But it was, it was a good cup tie in that sense. It was like, I've, I've certainly been a, a worse Old Trafford atmospheres. I saw that when Fellaini was taken off, there was a big reaction from the crowd. Yes. Yeah, and I think that, that was an undercurrent right throughout the game, which there were a lot of groans. And whenever whenever he gets near the ball. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Um, it's 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 you almost you feel kind of sorry for Fellaini in that sense because he is was as John Giles put it a game lad, and you could never accuse him of kind of not trying. Like, he, he's a very honest player in that sense, if maybe not with his elbow sometimes, but he he does kind of sum up a lot a lot, a lot of what's wrong with Van Gaal's United, like and it's quite interesting in that sense because of the fact that he's totally not a Van Gaal player. I mean, Van Gaal's made his career on dogmatic adherence to, you know, technical possession. And Villani is completely unsuited to that game. But yeah, I mean, you could see it so often yesterday, particularly in the first half, well, in pretty much any attack until they took him off for Schweinsteiger, that United would be trying these kind of laboured passing. They wouldn't really have anywhere to go. So that it would be, what would happen when Fellaini would make one of those runs, which are easy to spot, and one of the fullbacks would try that diagonal ball that was easily put out. And so many people rumbled it. And, and Fellaini's mere presence seems to kind of condition you know, the way United play even more. Yeah, it's, it's funny because regardless of whether he's in the team or not, it's not as though, um, yeah, it's not, it's not as though they're not laboured when he's not in the side. And just on, yeah. and they're, they're limping along now and have been for so long that uh, the, even the question of who's going to take over is starting to get a little bit, a little bit boring, a little bit repetitive in that uh, people are just assuming it's Mourinho or Ryan Giggs. Now, I was interested in uh, the United, United We Stand um, editorial that Ken has sent on to me here that Andy Mitten has written this week and he's made a big push for Giggs. He says that he should be the man. Giggs has got more experience at United than any other person working on the football side of the club. He's been massively and consistently successful in his life. He's hugely respected abroad yet some United fans talk of him like he's some sort of knob who doesn't know what he's doing. Is Do some Manchester United fans in your experience think of Giggs that way? Yeah, I mean, and you even see it in the polls actually that I think they were mentioned that column. They're just, there's just been a massive rush against Giggs and I do, you do wonder it's it's connected. I think. I think there's so much going on here from kind of you know the, the recent history of the club, and in terms of people connected to Ferguson. I think is when we're talking, we're talking about this piece among ourselves. John Brew mentioned about how there is an odd faction among some United fans who just don't like Ferguson. I suppose for, for reasons related to the, to the Glazer takeover and all of that, and and, and Giggs connected to that. Also, I suppose Giggs has been involved in two uh, failed regimes now, and even in a in a more personal sense, there does seem. Uh, a slight air of entitlement about gigs and the job. Um, Andy argued his piece very well there, but I suppose the perception from some United fans, maybe the fact that he, he feels it should come to him without necessarily having proven any way, and it, and it is ultimately one of the biggest jobs in football. Although in saying that, I have to say, I'm almost coming around to the idea that uh, 
gigs it'd nearly be a better option than, than Mourinho there's, there's something about the Mourinho United thing which I think I mean I, I think it'll happen I think mean, Mourinho's people certainly are very confident and you can even see from Mourinho's comments at the weekends that he's talking all these cryptic terms that he kind of does when he's mischievously confident in that way um, but there's something about I think it, it could be a spectacular failure mm. I, I mean I'm, I'm, I think that Mourinho Mourinho's people as you put it are going to act all confident right until the moment when it's confirmed that he either has or hasn't got the job. I mean, either way, they're going to act out, act as though they've got it. Um, but it strikes me, I mean, Andy Mitten mentioned in this editorial, Alex Ferguson, David Gill, and Bobby Charlton all supporting gigs for the role. You're talking about three quite significant figures in the history of Manchester United there. You know, yeah. certainly in terms of... Uh, forget about the actual decision-making power, but in terms of influence and respect, they are the top three men on the board. Uh, and if they all reckon that Giggs would be a better choice than than Mourinho, who is Ed Woodward to say otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the thing, I mean, I think we discussed this last time we was on. We talked to Mourinho himself. I mean, a big thing when you're behind is basically. You, you can't replicate what the opposition are doing, especially if they're ahead of you, which is pretty much what United would be doing by appointing Mourinho. It almost just feels a response to City appointing a better, more modern manager in Guardiola because it's basically the only real option available in that sense. Well, maybe they, they should innovate and try something different. I suppose Giggs would would be that option. Um, although I'm not, I w- I'm not sure <laughs> if uh, Gill... Ferguson and Charlton are seeing it in, the, in those reasons mm. or seeing it for those reasons and as we've said on a number of occasions there are other managers in the world outside of Giggs <laughs> and Mourinho so it's Absolutely, not necessarily yeah. Giggs should get it, it, just it I think as you've said before Owen, it, 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 it is so odd that a job of this magnitude has come right down to these apparent two choices one kind of basically I suppose you know the, the head boy of the club or else you know <laughs> the most famous manager in the world. There does seem to be that absence of thinking about it all. Seems to be. All right, Miguel, brilliant to talk to you. Thanks, Mill. Thanks, lads. So Andy Mitten is on the Ryan Giggs bandwagon, you would assume. Well, we might talk a little bit more about that, actually, because I'm interested to know how much weight that will carry that uh, fanzine like United We Stand is getting, is getting itself behind Giggs. I was quite surprised by the result of those polls that Miguel mentioned there. It seems as though hardly any Manchester United fans want Ryan Giggs to become their new manager. Something like 80% are in favour of Mourinho. Yeah, um, which I think you can I think you can understand. I mean, there's no doubt who's got the better record. Hmm. Uh, so it's, I suppose, natural that people would say, would see Mourinho as a safer well, option. Yeah, I don't know how, how natural it is. A lot of clubs, we talked about Alan Shearer earlier, Newcastle fans, even now might want Alan Shearer to become their manager. You know, there's a certain status attached to the club legend. And the big argument that um, that, and, that Andy Mitten was making was that G- what has Giggs done wrong, is what he said. What has he done not to deserve the shot? It's easy not to do anything wrong if, if you don't do anything. And if, you com- if you're uh, uh, allowed to just completely bypass any effect that you're supposed to have if you're a number two. Huh. I mean, what is a number two if, if what you're, if you're saying now is that he's done nothing wrong? Then he's done nothing. Uh, you're, 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 he's been on that bench now for how many, however. That's many what Van Hal wants. So according to Mitten, Van Hal wants his assistants to just lay back a little bit, allow the players to work things out for themselves. 
Well, that's, that's, that's what he was says. Was Moyes the same? Because wasn't he Moyes yeah, like that's, working as a player coach? Yeah, I don't know how much you uh, can't he hold, was hold allowed up, yeah. influence. But sorry, go on. Yeah, you can't hold it up as, you know, he served his time and then also say he's done nothing wrong. I mean, yeah. he's, if, you've, if you've served your time, it would suggest that you've done something that means you deserve a crack at the big job. Yeah. And, and that would have been moving away and doing a smaller managerial job. Would that have been doing your time? Is that what he? Is that what you're both you're saying? That well, what, he, what he needed to do was was actually no, manage a team. No, no. I mean, I, I think you can create an argument for Ryan Giggs to get the job, but you can't say he's done nothing wrong. You can't you can't say both things because then he's, because he's been a part of two dysfunctional, two kind of failed regimes. He's been a part of them. So either he has been a part of them, in which case he has done something wrong. He's kind yeah. of dirty to do a bit, or he hasn't been part of them, in which case he's he hasn't served his time. Yeah, that's. <laughs> well, apart from all the years at Manchester United, I suppose. I mean, Mitten makes the point that nobody knows the club like him. You know, he's more experienced. Than him. That's all true. Uh, and, and I mean, I imagine he'd be the kind of figure that they really could get behind if it was to go well. But it's just a question of whether he's really, whether he's really got it. I mean, he, and he hasn't really shown the sort of courage to risk his own reputation. That whatever you say about these other former legendary Manchester United players, they have done that. Roy Keane has done that. Maybe because they've had to, though. Roy Keane didn't have the option to stay at Manchester United and be an assistant, and maybe neither did Bruce or That's Mark Hughes. Ferguson never seemed true. to rate Mark Hughes in terms of his leadership or managerial ability Yeah. Uh, until... Ferguson, not always on. necessarily the best judge of other managers. <laughs> not as good judging that as he is judging other things. But, you know, Keane did it. Neville has been doing it uh, out in Valencia. I mean, they lost again on the weekend to Levante. The derby is not great. So the smart thing is to stay, uh, stay United. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, maybe you could... You could you could see him as having blown up his career by deciding to join Cardiff. I don't actually believe that, though. I think you have to do that. I mean, how else are you going to learn how to do the job other than by doing it? Giggs has not been doing it. So suddenly to come in at Manchester United with all the pressure they're going to be under and to be competing against people like Pep Guardiola, who's going to be just down the road from him, Jurgen Klopp, you know, maybe it won't be the same set up as Arsenal. We don't know. Antonio Conte at Chelsea. These are the top coaches in Europe or the, the top proven, established guys in this field over the last 10 years in Europe and gigs by comparison to them as a novice. And, you know, would you fancy his chances against them? It would be a huge risk. And maybe that's the most interesting thing about it. Uh, it would be like, well, let's try this. This, is, this could be crazy, but it might just work out. I don't think that, I think Ed Woodward, though, is a bit more risk averse than that. Who would you prefer to see in there? Just lastly, I don't mean for the success of Manchester United, but as uh, I know, obviously we know all about the Mourinho soap opera, but would it be equally as compelling to see yeah. Giggs as the manager? I think it would. More compelling? Uh, Something well, a bit different? To be honest, the thing about Mourinho, I mean, we know that Mourinho, particularly when he, he's, you know, he will obviously have a big fight with Guardiola, try to attack Guardiola constantly, but we kind of know what he's going to do. We've sort of seen it happen before. And I thought he, I thought he was shrinking the last time. You know, I thought his... You know, at Chelsea, it was it was all getting a little bit tired. I mean, I would rather see what would happen if Giggs was to take over. I would rather see that. Murph? Oh, uh, no, no. Still Mourinho for with me, the, to be honest. The Mourinho show. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we just got tired of Mourinho at Chelsea, you know. There was just too many. <laughs> you know, it was just I, too I know similar. You, you know, it was, a, it, it, it was just a rehash uh, of the original as opposed to a true sequel. It would be interesting if, uh, you know... Because you read a few things where people are saying, well, Mourinho, he, he's actually always wanted to move to Manchester United. That was always his end goal. You know, and once he's got there, once he's got to the place that he considers to be home, that's when you're going to see the, uh, the empire building Mourinho. Not just like this, this sort of 
uh, crazed sort of you know piratical figure, you know, uh, ripping things up over over a short period of time, you know, just winning a couple of things and then destroying the club. Uh, what you're going to see is like alongside it, uh, Mourinho Augustus. You know what I mean? Once he takes over at, at Manchester United, I don't believe that for a second. I mean, I can't see that happening, but. 79-year-old Jose Mourinho in charge of Manchester United. I don't really see that. You go enjoy the rest of your day. We're going to work on another podcast, which we're going to produce later on. It's uh, later on on Monday. What are we going to talk about there? Oh, Six Nations and Victoria Pendleton, who mm-hmm. is, I'm sure you're familiar with Victoria Pendleton, two-time Olympic champion cyclist who has decided in her mid-30s to become a jockey and is now riding the top amateur race at Cheltenham. On Friday, so we're going to have a good chat about that. In the meantime, rate the podcast on iTunes, subscribe to it, tell some friends about it, tell some enemies about it. Just spread the word, it doesn't really matter. Murph, thank you. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you to Owen, thank you, girl. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.